Hey guys, this is Tom Gelly coming to you from Wanaka, New Zealand. I'm here with my good friend Riley. Hey guys. Riley and I are rooming together for uh, this period of training over here. We're working with the Rookie Academy. It's going to be a great uh, couple of months for Riley and great three weeks for me. Um, we arrived a couple of days ago and we've been up. We've had a day of skiing. Snow conditions are not too bad. Snow quality is really nice. We just need a bit more snow. But uh, what I thought this time was uh, we'd perhaps share a conversation as this is what usually happens. We, you know, we watch videos or we see each other skiing and we ask each other questions about what we're trying to do and, uh, and work on. So that's, that's uh, what this episode with Riley McGlashan is about. So um, to kick it off, Riley, um, what... What have been some focuses in your skiing or your training over the last, you know, since since I last spoke to you on the podcast several years ago? Well, uh, seeing like what we've been chatting about the last few days since we've been here um, has been a big focus. And I'll go in a little bit more in depth about what that is as um, we've been talking about external cues. And I remember a few years ago, at the trainers coordination in Australia where you were talking about external cues and I didn't really know what what the definition was but I knew that I used a lot of them for my own training and when you brought that to light I started realizing that that's pretty much the only type of um, exercises that I use and since then I've been trying to develop um, ways to make external cues a bit more easier to comprehend for you know guests okay so explain to me first what is an external cue and for those people that don't know why why the use of an external cue is useful. So first, what is it and why? Well, um, simply put, and hopefully I won't get roasted by some of the technicalities <laughs> from all the external cue scientists out there, but yeah. um, you know, basically an external cue is something that you can reference externally from your body. So yep. you know, your, your hand touching your knee you can externally see those things happening or like lifting your foot off the ground you can see you, things that you can give yourself a reference point externally whereas an internal cue would be you know can you feel you know the your glute or yeah, your, your glute engage or the the your heel of your foot um, yeah. while you're closing your eyes Imag or, or um, imagining think different things so yeah, move your feet away from you you can't actually measure like how far away it is relative yeah. To where you started so yeah external cues help you actually measure success yeah. and how well you perform the task yeah yeah exactly so um yeah essentially that's kind of an external cue and an internal cue the reference between the two but yeah why i like those a lot is because of the um when i you can set parameters with guests and you can give them the the parameters that they have to like a set of rules for the external cue and that lets the, the guest or even myself when I'm self-training myself is, um, understand if I'm accomplishing the goal or not. Mm -hmm. So like yesterday, sort of pretty much one of your first days back on snow yeah. for the Southern Hemisphere winter, can you give us an example of an external cue drill or exercise you used to get yourself, you know, back in in the right spot or achieving what you're trying to achieve um yeah i did a like a poles over the shoulder drill where it was pointing the poles down the hill yeah 
and that gives myself an external reference to where the, down the hill is and roughly where my shoulders are facing. So that's, you know, just a little yeah. example of something that I did yesterday. Yeah. And straight away, uh, could you tell, like, were you a bit out of, like, was there, was there one side where you noticed, oh, yeah, wow, I'm definitely not, I need to focus a bit more on... It was because uh, it was a little bit tricky yesterday. I was more worried about dodging rocks that I didn't get to super focus exactly in what I was doing, Yeah. unfortunately. But hopefully this coming week when we get a bit more snow, I won't be so worried about the skis. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, can focus more on it. And so you use a lot of drills with poles? Uh, with, with and without poles, yeah. Yeah? Just heaps of different different variations. But the biggest thing is giving giving the making the parameters happen like setting the parameters for the exercise and giving the external reference of how the exercise is accomplished so that they can so that people can know if they are actually doing the the drill or not because I do a lot of self-coaching and those are how I figure out like I don't need video to do an external cue yeah so yeah, I don't I don't need any film um, for an external cue that I've because basically you can you can see if you're accomplishing the task or not, and um, that's what I really like about it is that when I teach people and they know the parameters, if they're accomplishing the parameters, they know they're doing the exercise, and if they're not, then they can um, really self assess and and understand that they're not doing it, and then we can go from there and see why they're not doing that exercise and, and give them a few little tips here and there to help maybe let them move in the correct way to um, actually do the exercise properly. Mm. Yeah, and it seems a lot of those drills, when I've watched you doing them, they help to kind of block out a certain part of the body from moving excessively to almost force you to start feeling movements in other areas um so then yeah that blocking out part yeah, yeah kind of helps them be able to notice achieving these parameters like yeah getting their skis across the hill but their shoulders do not go across the hill at all yeah well that's the yeah all the different types of exercises um out there obviously to correct a specific you know deficiency in a movement so if it's whatever the exercise is that's the is trying to block out the the error that that person is making in their skiing so whether it's mm. you know if it's upper body rotation and they're twisting the upper body around then then the exercise to help block them from twisting their upper body back and forth across the hill is is what is trying to cut out yeah yeah and um, it was interesting when uh, when we were in Jindabyne, um, and you know I did we I did one of those presentations at the brewery, kind of talking about the importance of like movements in the joints of the body and getting people to be aware of how to move that. We had a good conversation where that's that's kind of half of it. In the other half, you could be the best mover, but if you put yourself in really poor equipment, yeah. like your boots. Uh, that can basically just undo all that good work. So there's a combination of both, and I know you've been really into boot fitting yeah. lately. So what are some of the things you've discovered th 
through, you know, understanding and studying, you know, boot alignment, boot fitting over the last few years. Yeah. Well, the, you know, the, what you were talking about at the, um, at the indoor presentation is really good and valid for creating different movements and body awareness and all that. But then we're stuck in a parameter of locking our ankles in a, in a fixed position and locking certain things with the ski boots that, and obviously we need ski boots to have, you know, leverage on a big long plank of, you know, wooden steel, wooden steel underneath our foot so we can slide from, you know, internal rotation to internal rotation on the arch of one foot to the other, which is not very natural for one, but, um, you know, what, if our, if our foot or body get locked into a position that we can't actually move correctly from that becomes an issue so we block the the movements that we need or the easiest possible place to do the ski movements so you know if you're bow-legged or if you're knock-kneed or if you're or if your boot actually pushes you into a bow-legged position or a knock knee position. position then you're starting out already um in a in a place where you're not going to be able to achieve the correct movements or get either get too much edge grip or not enough edge grip you know put your knee in a weak position or um either way and mm. it directly affects up the chain for knee injuries and back injuries and so what were what over the last few years have you discovered you need to look for in a boot or modify in a boot for your particular anatomy um well i've had to really adjust the cuffs a lot so bring in the bring the cuffs in as far as they go yeah because i have very, i don't have much i have very high tibial varum um and very straight straight tib fib lower down yeah so where the boot fits it's very very straight it's and it's much straighter than the dalvello boot naturally comes yeah so i've had to bring that in a lot personally for my for my leg and you're just looking for the tibia and fibula to basically sit dead center in the cuff in the cuff yeah, yeah yeah and then with my footbed on my right foot i've got a little bit of um forefoot virus which is which i've accommodated for in, in the footbed to help you know let my foot pronate from a neutral position not, mm-hmm. not stuck in pronation yep and you know the the malleolus is kind of a bit big on my foot so giving a little bit more room around that yep to help not block my foot from from moving so much yeah no, so, so allowing yeah, allowing to, my foot to move yeah. correctly not blocking it from not being able to move so that'd be your inside kind of yeah, ankle, ankle bone yeah 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 and so you just grind no, i just punched it punch in. punch a spot yeah. so it sits in there and it can actually yeah. move yeah so to the inside cups, cups my anatomy you know yeah not except i don't need excessive it's just the right amount of everything like if you could if you could design the perfect boot for you how would it feel around your ankle and foot um just even pressure everywhere even just dead even pressure yeah. everywhere. no spot with a no. lot of pressure no spot missing yeah. just dead even yeah, pressure. Every, yeah even pressure everywhere yeah that's, and so that's what a boot should feel but nice and firm like tight and yeah and firm obviously but it shouldn't um, have any pressure points like on your ankle or in just one point you like over your navicular or mm-hmm. you know six toe as well if you're having pressure points on in different parts of your feet where all of a sudden your feet are starting to get sore there then you won't want to move that way in a in the 
way that your foot will get sore and then you'll start doing compensation compensating movements yep. and so um because i know you went over and did the course with harold harb the boot fitting course yep. um what i think was really interesting that goes a bit beyond a lot of uh places is is testing out on snow changes to your boots so you mm. guys all actually adjusted your boots with the cuffs way out yeah way in canting out canting yeah, in yeah and then did like very simple flat almost flat land kind of drills yeah where you balance and you got to actually feel how you would compensate with too much lateral support too much medial support yeah. like inside support so was that a really good learning yeah curve? oh it's awesome to do that that type of thing and it was a really um fun course to be a part of to see all of the different aspects and how much a boot can affect the technique and how to look for whether it's the boot or the, or it's actually the person's technique and they kind of go hand in hand yeah with each other you know the technique and, and the setup that i don't think that they can they can be separated, separated really now knowing what i know yeah the thing is it's hard to understand it until you actually do these things and see and play with how much it can affect the way you ski yeah right to really get an understanding if you need to change or if you don't need to change yeah and um without a proper assessment of how all the different ranges of your foot and the calcaneal eversion inversion and dorsiflexion and plantar flexion range of movement tests and and where your center of mass of your knee sits and how much you know tibial varium you have and if you're if you're um you know the center of mass of your knee tibial plateau where that sits and all these different aspects that get measured if without having a proper assessment and seeing how it affects your skiing it's really just guessing it, guessing yeah, yeah. and you and hoping and yeah guessing and hoping that you know that one plastic thing fits your foot and your anatomy correctly and sometimes it does, it does but it's, yeah. it's not really that often yeah yeah because you ended up with your staff in japan and your guests you yeah. did you that would would you say that would almost be one of the first things yeah. you'd be checking with all of them? Yeah, well, a lot of my, a lot of the guys that we work with in, in Japan, in our ski school, I, I set them up um, having a look. The problem was this year in Japan, I didn't have as all the exact equipment to be able to do all of the stuff. Like, okay. if, I had, if I had all the equipment, I could have done more things, but... Um, yeah, so that's going to be the next year process is to try and get all the equipment to be able to modify every aspect. I only had, you know, a limited set of of things to be able to modify boots with. Yeah, okay. So, obviously cuffs are very easy to change. Yeah. And then if we had a boot with plates, then I could create canting on that. But I'd have to get someone else to router the, the, um, the, toe, know, and the heel. toe and heel piece to make yeah. it fit properly. Yeah. And then... I did buy footbed makers, so I can make, but I didn't have a, you know, belt sand or, you know, yeah. anything to shape them. Yeah. Or yep. the workspace, so I actually couldn't make any this year, but, yeah. um. So on that, on that topic, um, of footbeds, your, how, how would you describe your footbed and the, the purpose of it? Um, yeah, my footbed's pretty minimal, but it's just, just to set up you know, my calcaneus in a neutral position and the forefoot in a neutral position in relation to the calcaneus. Yeah. 
Just um, so you're starting starting from from the neutral. middle. Yeah, yeah neutral. so it can either supinate or pronate. Yeah. Um, if it's stuck in pronation, then you can't pronate anymore. You can yeah. only supinate from so, or vice versa. Yeah. So making it into a, into a, yeah, setting your foot up into a place where it's not going to be blocked to do those movements because those movements are very important in skiing. Yeah. And so, so do you feel under the arch of your foot? Is there much support under there, or where do you feel the? I feel contact, but contact, it's not yeah. like I I haven't built up the arch to be like a blocking, um, hard rigid thing. Yeah. It's not. Yeah, it's more adjustments and the it, footbed adjusts from the your heel bone. Yeah. yeah, and the the very front of the foot. It doesn't really mess around with the middle of your foot, does it? No, not my one. No, yeah. it's very nice and soft and yeah. allows me to um use my foot hmm. now there are other things other equipment things you over the years have modified like your um poles or particular choice of skis lately um i i like skiing on every ski really yeah it just depends on what i'm doing but yeah. mostly when i'm teaching i am teaching on a slalom ski because um i don't ski extremely fast when i'm teaching and when i'm when people are trying new things out for the first time, obviously you want to do it at a slow speed. So um, a slalom ski allows me to exaggerate the movements at a slower speed so people can see see them yeah. easier. Yeah. That's kind of the only reason. Like if I go free ski by myself, which I don't get a lot of time to do, then I'll, I'll ski on anything. Yeah. Like whatever whatever I'm going to go do, I'll, I'll go... Choose like, the equipment for that. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know... Yeah. The ski that I really want to have in Japan this year is the Kendo. Mm-hmm. Something a bit 90 underfoot, like a yeah. 177. Yeah. We're good, good in the trees, good in like kind of cruddier, bumpier snow as well. Yeah. Um, but it's not super wide where, and where you're going to be just doing big tank turns everywhere. Yeah. And what, over this time in, in New Zealand, <clears throat> have you got any kind of, goals or like focuses in your own skiing that you're going to work on oh always but that's what but whatever whatever the whatever i'll be teaching on the day will be my focus for the guests yep you know so every time you do the demonstration for the for you know the people that will be training will be obviously a big focus in doing the exercise correctly yep so it's um It'll be hard to say until I see the group. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah. But then, you know, on days off, are there things you're going to, you know, looking over video from your last season and and that sort of stuff, you know, what what, what are some, what is maybe one thing you've picked to, to go, right, I'm going to work on that? Um, trying to make mistakes look good. Uh-huh. <laughs> so just tidying things up. Yeah, but I, it's more like everyone makes mistakes. There's no, I've never seen anybody ski around without making mistakes. But I think um, skiing is a little bit of an art form as well, in the sense that if if um, you know when you do make a mistake, if you let that mistake flow into something good, mm. and and you make that you make that um, mistake, but make it look good at the same time, so it doesn't it keeps flowing and there's no there's no like oh yeah something way out of whack yeah just keeping the flow yeah that's that's the that's the 
something that I'm going to try and be working on. It's not set necessarily like a really technical thing. Like there's obviously lots of different technique technique based things that I do work on. Yeah. Um, but, but there, there's, there's an, an overall arching kind of like. Yeah. Once once all those goal. things. Yeah. Once yeah. all those things are because you know it's never ending with technique. So yeah. It, one thing after the next, but making all the little tiny mistakes that you make in between all of the techniques and all mm. the movements flow into one another and make the mistake look good. I think that's a, that's an art form. Mm. <laughs> and you got to, we were chatting when we had coffee earlier about, uh, you, you got you and, uh, some friends got some time in Japan to ski with Richie Berger yeah. and how you really enjoyed that. Um, are there any particular things you gained or, you know, noticed from Richie or, or whatever that you're going to utilise now? Um, skiing with him just consolidated a lot of my ideas in skiing in general. Yeah. So it was good to, you know, ideas that I had about skiing. But the one thing was that he does use a lot of drills that are external cues. And that's what was a big um, consolidation for me. He, we did a lot of exercise that I hadn't hadn't have done before they were all new a lot of new ones that were that i pretty much did the first time in that session yeah that we were doing and um yeah it was it was really cool to see that a lot of that stuff was external cue based yeah given giving parameters and trying to accomplish that within um, those parameters yeah 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 so yeah. that was that so was, even after skiing with him you didn't need him to go, hey, am I doing this right, Richie? You, you just knew because you <laughs> if would... If you don't accomplish the, the, the parameters set, then you know you're not doing it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's that's why I have been using those external cues for a long time because they do let you know... If you if you know the rules around that drill, Yeah. then you know if you're doing it or not. Yep. And, yeah. um, and that's a big... Because that's how I train myself all the time. So it did give me the few different exercises to think about that I that I'll use but um the consolidation of of how you know he did his training session was that that was kind of one of the things you yeah really gained from it yeah yeah and like you were saying in how long did you ski with him for just three hours three hours and how many drills would you say you did oh, it, was, three it hours? was like two to three drills a run there was a lot of stuff yeah wow well, so he just went. He just kind of powered over a lot of information quickly. Yeah, yeah. So it wasn't really none of the drills were meant to be mastered. They would just show something, have a give a go, and then move on to the next thing. Yeah, yeah. So it wasn't it wasn't like a really in depth of each drill. Yeah. But I think, um, the yeah I don't know how much everyone else picked up from it, but for what I did was that the parameters of the external cues for those drills and how they can be applied and practiced after yeah yeah cool um i was gonna say we uh we just were chatting a bit about um my skiing yesterday and in the video what we saw and um yeah you were just sort of you basically it was really good first of all you asked me what my goals were before picking apart my skiing, <laughs> which was nice. And I said, it's fine, go for it. Uh, my goals are more 
just to be versatile and I was asking you because I was interested to hear an outsider's point of view on what you saw was perhaps missing or you know what you would see if you could add to my skiing that it would make it more dynamic or more or easier or 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 achieve some you know performance tasks so that was that was really cool and you pointed out that um yeah i just tend to flex my knee and get my hips back a little bit too early yeah and so what would be um you know because a lot of people these days are trying to ski you know low in this low position so what what was your uh yeah reasoning for giving me you know uh, the focus of maybe don't let my knee bend and my hips drop back that early yeah um just because in it was kind of happening right at the the biggest you know right in the middle of the turn where the most pressure's coming on which is where you're going to get the most type of um rebound from the ski so if you're dissipating force from there so if you're flexing you're taking away pressure from the outside ski gradually which means that the ski will never um fully engage and get you a a huge amount of rebound which is a smooth way to ski for sure yeah but the thing that you said to me before is that you wanted to have more snap yeah in in your skiing yeah so if you resist that force in a with a longer stronger position for a split second more the ski will react as long as the center of mass and your your body is in the right position to line up the forces over the outside ski. Yeah. If you're in the right position, obviously, technically. Yeah. But if you if you uh, allow yourself to do that, you'll get a bit more rebound from the ski because mm-hmm. you would be structurally in a better position to resist the force, or like you know balance against it. I should say not resist it, but balance against it. Yeah. In a in a stronger position. And so. Yeah, it was awesome, and we had a look, and really helped me to see. Yep, that's exactly what I'm gonna go out tomorrow and work on. Would you now with this ex- external cue kind of focus of this chat coming up? Could you think of perhaps one way I could incorporate an external cue or an exercise that is that has got a parameters parameters set to it to help me achieve that? Yeah, so I guess. Um, doing some J turns and traverses, but you know it's kind of like a power, a power, power stance. Yeah. So wide, like yep. cowboy, and just really shortening the inside leg and lengthening the outside one. Yeah. And keeping them parallel, obviously, but yep. shortening one as short as you can in a J turn to as long as you can out there, and just feeling and seeing. The, the leg length and just practicing that movement of shortening the inside leg as, as well and letting the inside leg flex and, and the hip move um, forward and in. Yep. And not um, back and in. Back and in, yeah. Yeah. Yep. So inside knee touching the chest. Yep. Outside leg as, um, as that ha- while it's wide, letting the outside leg main, remain long. Would you almost say like, for me to almost feel it like over exaggerate how straight and long that outside leg would be yeah you could do that for sure yeah yeah Yeah. okay and then i'd know what would be uh, a reference to know perhaps that i've got it right yeah so i guess 
yeah, they're, you know, these are kind of sensational, sensation things though. But um, if you're doing it slow, you can always check and look down at your leg. That's an external thing. You can you can judge reference for yourself how bent your leg is. Yep. Yeah. So obviously you have to take it um, pretty slow. Yeah. And safely while looking up the hill first. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But you can see. So I like checking. You can always check um, your body position, and you can ch- when when you're doing like stalk turns, you can look down and see if your your tips on the snow or off the snow these yeah. things you can you can double check whether these exercises are correct as long as you're doing it in a safe way so mm. i'd suggest looking down your leg and seeing how bent it is to first get an idea to first get an idea of visual where, yeah, yeah, visual, yeah. To reference that as where the feelings are and, and then you can and then you can start gauging the feelings a little bit better yeah knowing when it's right but just double checking with the with the leg yeah would be the biggest thing yeah the inside knee touching the chest Mm-hmm. Um, that's another reference you can see how far away your knee is from your yeah. chest and the interesting thing was because you know you brought up equipment versus technique before how would have you because we discussed do you think there's anything in my boots that's causing me to do that what made you think no to the boots um, I'd have to double check exactly but there was nothing that stood out with the with the fore aft alignment of, of, alignment the, of the boot yeah to think that it was a boot issue because obviously sometimes having too much forward lean Mm -hmm. will not allow people to extend their or vice versa you know not allow the the person to have their leg as long as it can be yeah while staying centered over the ski it can either then levy too far forward or levy too far back yeah so having a four and the appropriate amount of forward lean for how much how long your tib fib is how long your femur and how long your torso are will yeah. affect how much forward lean you need yeah um and then also the range of movement that you have getting into a squat position will also affect um what type of setup you'll have depending on what you want to ski so if you want to flex a lot at the transition like say in the moguls and mm-hmm. still say centered without getting back and not like collapse at the what at the waist or different things like that, you'll need to set up the boot exactly right for, for that for, for those that three, task. Yeah. yeah, and for those those three measurements: the tib fib length, femur length, and torso length, and then also how much you naturally can squat. You know, because that will have like to do with the femur heads, yeah, and all those different and that anatomical differences from person to person. Yeah, of um of what's possible for that person so that has to be taken into consideration as well yeah but i didn't see anything like yeah. you have a good range of movement when you squat yeah you can squat all the way down and you can extend you have a, you have a very good awareness of your body and um and i didn't notice when you were from side on that there was any type of um too much forward lean or too little forward lean yeah 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 i think it just looked to me that you were just like like bit, a timing yeah timing timing issue and just yeah. giving in and flexing yeah giving in and flexing a little bit too early or yep yeah yeah cool. letting the hip drop back as that happened yep yeah nice um and so we were just looking at uh martin guggenegg yeah yeah video of him before and you were pointing out some things that uh perhaps we can put a link up to oh there's no link oh there's no link okay this is the last this is actually the last copy of it in the world oh really yeah i got it i bought it in japan on like a 
random VHS. Yeah, VHS, but it was on a on an um, I don't know, a Japanese eBay type thing. Oh, really? Yeah, second hand. Really? Like, it took a lot to find. And it's of Martin Gugne, who's yeah. an an Austrian top. Was well, was an Austrian top top demonstrator. demonstrator. Yeah, yeah, he's passed on now. But um, what what is in this video? Oh, uh, so this was you know, I've I've seen clips of this video before, and it's just extremely, you know, fun mobile thing to watch. Yeah. And I wasn't actually sure what it was to be honest with you, because it's all in Japanese. So yeah. I didn't know what the video was about. I just knew there was moguls in it, and that's kind of why I wanted it. Yeah. It ends up being a full instructional on. Huh. Which I have no idea what they're talking about, but they do. <laughs> you can see, you can re externally see the. Yeah, you can see the exercises, and you can and you can just make up your own interpretation in your head. But yeah, um, what were some of the things you liked, like the exercises or or specific things you're seeing in this in Martin's skiing, um, that appeal to you? I mean, a lot of the exercises are pretty um, standard exercises that I've, you know, that I do with guests, and I've mm -hmm. seen seen a lot. So. The exercises were not, um, it wasn't anything new or like... Breakout. Yeah. Like, yeah. But the, the way that he skis was really why I bought it. It was uh -huh. just to see more his free skiing and see how he moves. And um, and the, and also the thing that I'm really impressed with is just his range of movement in the moguls. And that's really why I wanted to, to see it a little bit more in depth. It was just how, how much range he, he can get with his legs actually. And how much his legs um, move against his torso is mm -hmm. just incredible. Like yeah. his, when he's in full flexion, his knees can be nearly all the way up to his chin, and they can be, and his tips can be facing like nearly ninety degrees across the hill. Yeah, he's not not back really. Yeah, and also just like his, he just has an incredible range of movement. Like, as as the skis are moving one way, his body can be moving another way. Yeah, with, with more that, range than you see in yeah, the typical Yeah, with more range skier. than I see. Like, obviously, that's an, what we were saying is an anatomical thing. Like, he's probably, his, his you know, femur heads are probably well built for going into a deep, deep flexion. Yeah. And then he also has very good... Um, so, rotational range yeah, as well. Yeah, proportions in his tib, fib, femur, and, yep. and torso, um, torso yep. to be able to do that. Like, another guy is, who had really, really good range, I'll have to... Is um, Jean Luc Brassard. Yeah. He's a he won. What was it? Nineteen. Was it ninety eight? Well, no, no, two thousand and two. I can't remember. An Olympic gold or a World Cup. Olympic gold. Yeah. But he's another guy. Like, if you watch his type of um, mogul skiing, he's another guy who had like this type of range of movement, and you don't yeah. see it that often. It's more of a uh, physiological thing that. You either can do it or you can't do it. Mm -hmm. Like even you can see it a lot in World Cup mogul skis. The difference in in how much movement they can have, mm -hmm. even though they're doing it all the time, and and they're all really good skiers. You can just see the difference between the range of movement between athletes. Yeah, yeah. And you know, he's another guy that I probably have a video of it actually. So people can just search yeah, John J E A N. Yeah, Luke, Luke Brassard. Brassard. Yeah. To have a look. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. It brings up, you know... Oh, here it is here. I'll show you. You got it? Some people probably being at a bit of a disadvantage already because um, they don't have that natural... Set. Yeah, wow. 
So he's super flexible, mobile. Yeah, wow. <laughs> so his knees are up almost at his collarbones yeah. as he absorbs a mogul and then a split second later completely tips back down again. Wow. Yeah, so this is, that's what, you know, when I watched um, Martin Guggenick skiing, it reminded me a lot of this skiing. Yeah. And obviously what I, you know, this is all coarse mogul skiing, which, you know, I think is very impressive and obviously it has its place in on the world stage at the moment but yeah. it's not very relatable to um the kind of moguls you're skiing a lot no for natural, you know, when moguls. natural moguls and when they there's so many different variations and you know there's longer bigger rounder bumps where you're not actually going over and absorbing so much and then there's you know deep troughs and then there's tight ones and there's medium-sized ones and they're all over the place and there's not really like any rhythm so that's what I saw in this video from the little clips was that it's just free it's just what you get on a day to day mogul run. Yeah. And that's what I think is more relatable. When you see someone really free skiing that at a high level, I I think that that is um you know, I like watching that better personally. Like I liked watching the mogul skiing back in um the early 90s before the before, before it was more per- perfectly kind of shaped, or more... Yeah, like there's some stuff... Consistently you... shaped bumps. Yeah. yeah, it was more a bit random, and so that yeah. you had to be adaptable, and cha- the rhythm was not always the yeah. same, boom, boom. Yeah. yeah, like another guy, like Edgar Grosbiron, he's like absolutely amazing, and he was skiing other, you know, before, you know, proper courses were set up, like just random mogul fields, and it was just... You know, that's the type of mogul skiing I like. Back in, like, 89, I think there was a really cool comp in Breckenridge that's on YouTube that you can check out. That's, mm-hmm. But you can just see there's, there's because there's so many different variations, you'll see them get a little bit of air in between moguls. You'll see them land on their tails. You'll see them dive their tips down. You'll see them do all these different types of moves that are, you know, would be considered um, not good technique in current World Cup. Uh, yeah, but yeah. But in... In terms of athletic kind in, of... But also just, in that type of situation where there's a really long trough and you don't want to go all the way deep into it, yeah, you might skip over to the... You might actually try and land on the tails a little bit and then slap down the tips on the backside. Yeah. There's just so many different possibilities and variations that you have in a, in a, you know, a random set of moguls that you don't have in a, in a World Cup course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Consistent kind of bump course. Yeah, yeah. cool. Um, awesome. So then I guess any, uh, any final things before we wrap up the chat? It's been pretty cool. Hopefully people have got a bit of an idea. I guess something maybe worth bringing up is, um, you know, we've been here a couple of nights and, uh, a lot of our spare time has been spent just like when it's not on snow, moving around and just like, uh, bike rides. Yeah, bike <laughs> rides and like pistol squat challenges and yeah. and just uh stretching and moving, right? Like trying to Yeah. Keep our bodies prepared and Yeah. And finding inconsistencies from the left foot to Some of you may already know that I've been advising Carve and working with the team for some time now. And this year the team has come up with probably some of the most exciting developments to date. They've been working on representing the most fun parts of skiing in their system. They've developed three brand new metrics, progressive edging, early weight transfer, and one that measures the G-force in a turn. 
And that one, I have to say, I got to try it out this winter in Australia, and that is really fun. This new addition is going to be incredible for anyone who's looking to really push their skiing up a notch. Now, what's even more interesting for this year is the system now detects what terrain you're on and pulls that into your ski IQ score. This is a huge change and a great upgrade because sometimes it would only really score well if you were skiing on perfectly groomed snow. Now it's going to accommodate and adjust whether you're skiing in steeper slopes, more chopped up snow or firmer snow. So this is a very big change that I think is massive kudos to the team to keep pushing and progressing the app even further. If you're the kind of skier that is looking for a tool to help push your technique that little bit further, then you should definitely check out what Carve can do. Use the code GELLIE15, that's G-E-L-L-I-E-1-5, to get 15% off for the next two weeks.